Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. How are you folks doing? Uh, mic is on, yes? Sounds on. Good. All right. So this is our fifth week in Psalm 23. There's only six verses. So it seems kind of a long time to spend in something as short as a psalm like this. But that's actually something that's how poetry works. And Psalm 23 is a piece of poetry. Um, question. How much of the Bible do you guys think is written in poetry? Take a stab. 40%. I've got a 40. Any more numbers? 30, 40, 60, 28. It's actually 29 and a half. No. Uh, taller. <laughs> yeah, it's about a third. About a third of scripture is written in poetry. And, and so actually learning how to read poetry and how to understand poetry is actually important for understanding how to read and understand the Bible. So you're not going to read a psalm the same way you might read a letter that Paul wrote or history about the kings of Israel. And so we've been taking our time in Psalm 23 uh, because that's what poetry requires. It requires kind of resting in it. And I thought for a minute, do we have that, um, that one psalm, the poet poem I gave you guys? Yes, no? There it is. Okay. So this is something I just thought we'd do for fun for a minute. This is uh, a short poem that uh, essayist I like named Wendell Berry uh, wrote for his wife. I'll just read it. We'll chat about it for half a second. So it goes, sometimes hidden from me in daily custom and in trust so that I live by you unaware as by the beating of my heart. Suddenly you flare in my sight a wild rose blooming at the edge, a thicket, grace and light, where yesterday was only shade, and once more I am blessed, choosing again what I chose before. Barry could have just walked over to his wife and said, hey, you know, you're nice, I like you, I love you, I'll marry you again. But had he done so, something would have been lost, okay? Poetry is able to say things that when we just use normal straight prose, we lose, all right? Now, on the flip side, if Barry's wife were to listen to this poem, hear Rose and go, wait, he thinks I'm thorny, probably she would have missed the message, okay? So what we do with poetry is we take our time to sit in it, let it saturate us, we look at the metaphors and we walk through them and try to get what's being said. And so, you know, this is what we've been doing. And Brad has taken us through the first half of Psalm 23, talking about a shepherd. We're in a pasture. Uh, our needs are met. We get quiet waters, the rod and the staff. They protect us from those kinds of things. Um, but if you look at, it's no longer up there, but if you look at where we're at today, the metaphor kind of shifts a little bit. Um, it starts talking about, a table in the presence of my enemies and an oil on my head and a cup. And frankly, I have yet to see a sheep walking around holding a cup. It's just something is going on here. The metaphor is kind of shifting a little bit. So it's a good time to stop and take a look at it. There's a couple of ways that we can, we can go with this. Uh, so one thing, in the culture of the time, David's day, uh, they used to blend a couple of images. One was a shepherd, but they used to blend that with also the idea of a king. Because a good king would be like a, a good shepherd. They would actually take care of their people and make sure they were well-fed and protected from enemies and all those kinds of things. And in fact, go home and Google it, but if you look up pictures of Pharaoh, 
you'll often see they have like this, looks like a shepherd's hook that they hold, okay? That's kind of what's going on in that image. And actually, one of Israel's prophets, Ezekiel, uh, towards the latter part of his book, named after him, chapter 34, he picks up this idea of shepherd, actually a bad shepherd in that case, and applies it to Israel's kings. And it's a long, extended metaphor over multiple verses. And he's doing this because they're not doing any of those things. They're, they're being horrible kings. And so he's saying, look, you guys are being really horrible shepherds. So it's possible that David, as he's writing a psalm, is thinking about that, that, gosh, you know, we're kind of, we're shepherd, king, you know, he should be providing. Um, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that shepherds actually had to prepare pasture for their sheep. Not every time you brought a sheep into a pasture was it ready to go. Sometimes there might be plants so that the sheep, if they ate, would die. Uh, the ground might need some, some reworking so the sheep's hooves wouldn't get caught, those kinds of things. And so there's also this other possible idea that the shepherd actually had to prepare the ground so the sheep could actually eat safely. And also, if you kind of think along those lines, it makes some sense that maybe there's some predators about, and so that's kind of the presence of my enemy thing. So it's really hard to nail down which way David is going, but there's this general idea. It's still within the realm of shepherd, even though it's using maybe people terms for something that a shepherd might do, but we're still kind of dancing in that general area. Um, One thing we're pretty sure of, though, and we can tell this by looking at how the psalm was written, is that Psalm 23 was probably not written when David was young, looking forward, but probably was written when he was older, looking backwards. It's very, very likely a reflection over his life. And one of the constants that he sees as he reflects is this very thing, that God has provided for him, provided a table for him over all those years. But there's an interesting twist here that, you know, you can read stuff quickly and and we can kind of miss it. And that's this little part of in the presence of my enemies. And it's interesting, if we go back and we look at David's story to kind of unpack that, because if he's looking back, we can look at his story as a way of unpacking what he meant by table in the presence of his enemies. So I don't know how familiar you are with David, second king of Israel, uh, his story can be found in Old Testament, the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, it began when the prophet Samuel, for whom those books are named after, uh, God guided him to go and anoint or choose David to be Israel's next king. Um, it was kind of an interesting thing because um, that was actually almost a secret uh, affair. It, it wasn't a publicly done thing. And when he was done anointing David to be king, David didn't immediately waltz into being king. He actually went back to shepherding and effectively running the family farm. And nobody knew this had taken place. It was a very private thing. A while later, David was eager. He was the youngest of about seven, six or seven boys, from what we know in Scripture. He was eager to go see his brothers on the battlefield. And he begged his dad, begged his dad, begged his dad, can I go see them? I want to go see what's going on. And so finally he got to go. He went there. And who's heard the story of David and Goliath? Yay, okay. That's where in David's life David and Goliath took place. So he was actually on a visit to see his brothers on the front lines of the battle against the Philistines, Israel's main enemy at the time. And it was then that he actually confronted and defeated Goliath. 
And so it wasn't until then that anybody really even began to notice uh, David. Um, in that battle where he defeated Goliath, David actually impressed the current king, Saul. Um, Saul was an interesting fellow. Uh, obviously, God wasn't very happy with Saul. It was a, it's a whole other story. Um, he was not Israel's best king. Suffice it to say that he was impressed with David, decided to keep David around, and actually eventually promoted David to be a, a leader among the military. And David would go out, and they'd run these military campaigns, and they'd come back, and go out and run these military campaigns back. They started to come back from these military campaigns, and there would be, you know, like the, when the Seahawks win, you get a parade at home. They'd come back from these, obviously not the 49ers, they, sorry, um, these military parades, when they came back, <laughs> would actually come out and, and cheer the, the soldiers coming back. And they developed this little refrain. And the refrain said, Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his tens of thousands. That didn't go over well. Uh, Saul is the reigning king. He's hearing this. He's thinking, okay... They like me, they like him a lot more. You see, Saul had a son. His name was Jonathan. And most kings, if you've got a son, you want your son to be king after you. And if you've got some popular upstart who's successful that people like, the odds of your son becoming king start to diminish and your hopes of establishing a long legacy don't look so good. So this bothered Saul, and he actually decided then, he said, this is not working out. I'm going to have to kill David. This is just not going well. Now remember, Saul had no idea, had no idea that Samuel had all the way back years ago anointed David to be king. So this is kind of what's going on here. So Saul couldn't really kill David outright. He's popular. Um, It's kind of hard to do that. It would have upset everybody. But he got lucky. Because his daughter, Michael, actually fell in love with David and thought, well, this is a nice guy. He's good-looking. He's a great general. I think I'd like to marry him. So Saul got clever. He thought, oh, this is going to work out well. He said, you know what, David? I'll grant you consent to marry my daughter. It's just one little hook. I need you to go out. Those Philistines that we've been battling. I want you to go out there and kill about 100 of them and then bring proof back to me that you've done it. Saul wasn't actually interested in having David go and kill 100 Philistines. He was hoping, he was hoping, and scripture's clear here, he was hoping that David was going to end up dead. That this was actually a plan to send David off and get himself killed. Didn't work out that way. David actually went out, killed twice that number, killed a couple hundred and came back. And so Saul's first attempt at getting rid of David just didn't work. And he, he just, he continued to nurse this grudge against David. And as things went on, David's part of the royal court. He's part of, you know, involved in the whole uh, leadership of Israel at this time. Uh, for reasons that we don't understand, Saul began to develop these really nasty fits of rage. Um, he would just get this explosive anger, couldn't control himself, uh, very upset. And one of the things that would help calm him down would be if David came by and, and played music. Because David, who wrote the psalm, was also a skilled musician, it turns out. And so Dave would come in, he'd play, and Saul would eventually calm down and, you know, go back to normal. And then a few days later, Saul would get all enraged again, and Dave would come in and play and calm down. 
Well, sometimes Saul did not calm down. And more than once, Saul thought, this is just too much, this is too much, this is too much. He grabbed his spear and tried to hit David multiple times, multiple times. David dodged and escaped barely several times from Saul trying to kill him. Now remember, this is God's anointed. This is the king God has chosen, right? It's not looking so good. It actually got so bad that David's wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, uh, David had to run. And Michael led him out the window of their house, down the wall of Jerusalem. David grabbed up a few loyalists and literally ran for the woods. Here's God's chosen king hiding in the woods with a band of loyal followers. Okay? Um, he stayed out there for years. It was not a short affair. Long time. David did not press God's hand. He didn't stomp about and say, well, I'm supposed to be king. This isn't working out very well. Okay? He, didn't, he had a couple opportunities actually to kill Saul. And he turned them both down. He didn't do it. He said, you know what? If God wants me to be king, it'll happen in his time. And he bided his time. And he waited. And he was patient. Eventually, actually, Saul did die, got killed in a battle, he and his son. That cleared the way, and David came back to Jerusalem and was made king. So now times are going to be good. All the problem of Saul, Israel's bad king, is over with. Smooth sailing going forward. Any case, so David's king. Um, where was I at? David was king. There we go. Um, he had a successful kingship. Actually, David's king rule of Israel is kind of a high point of things. But there were still enemies running around. So like any king, he had to deal with those enemies. Things weren't going well. David made some bad decisions as well. Okay. Uh, one, you may recall, have you heard the name of Bathsheba? You guys familiar with that name? Uh, if you're not uh, loosely put, David held an affair when he shouldn't have to try to sleep it under the rug and killed her husband. Probably not a good piece of advice. Um, so here again is God's anointed king. He's finally ruling, but things are still not smooth. Things are still not smooth. And frankly, David didn't handle his family all that well. Uh, he had a number of sons, had a number of wives. Um, there's a joke there I won't go into. Um, I'll leave that aside. Um, David had a number of sons, number of wives, didn't handle the family situation very well. Uh, as a result, a bunch of dissension broke out. Uh, things got a bunch of political infighting took place. And here's David, king of Israel, ruling in Jerusalem. And one of his sons began to plot a coup. And David had to run again. David had to leave Jerusalem for a second time, grabbed a bunch of loyalists again, and was again living on the run out in the woods. This is God's king. Eventually, there were some battles. Absalom, uh, his son, did get defeated. Unfortunately, he did get killed. David came back, took over the uh, rulership again. And it was during that time that we think he probably wrote this song. Okay. So there's a lot in David's story that I don't personally care for. It's not the kind of story I would have liked to have read, particularly about somebody who wrote a psalm like this. I would have preferred a story where, you know, God anoints him. There's a relatively smooth 
transition in the king. If, you know, maybe it's not completely smooth, but it's always, you know, hero battles. He wins every single one and becomes king, and crowds cheer, and, and he's there. Um, at the very least, after he became king, I would hope for a nice, peaceful rule. The land flourishes, everything goes well, and eventually David just fades off into non-existence through death. But that's not the story that we have. That wasn't David's life. David's life had ups, it had downs, there were battles, there were intrigues, there were coups, there were counter-coups. It wasn't a straightforward walk of life, okay? But as he looked back over all of this, David still saw one constant thing, and that is that God provided for him in all of it. But then with that twist, in the presence of my enemies. Um, I would like the verse to have been written more like, God provides a table by removing all my enemies. Okay? I mean, honestly, that's what I would prefer. But that's not what happened for David. It's not what happens for me. I wish that my car would always run. I wish that being married was always easy. I wish that my kids were never a challenge. I wish that I didn't make stupid decisions, and believe me, I've made several. We, um, we moved to Colorado a few years ago, actually as an attempt to um, help one of our kids kind of get a fresh start. And I was so clever, because uh, we were moving. I had a good job here in Seattle. And I thought, oh, this is great. I can set this up to work and take the job with me to, uh, to Colorado. And I did. It was great. I was working out of the house. It was great, making good money. Six months in, the company, the job fell apart. And so I'm sitting there. It was Christmas, actually, right before Christmas. And I'm sitting there going, okay, I'm unemployed, Christmas. I'm in Colorado. I have no idea what I'm going to do for work. Uh, thankfully, I found another job in a couple of months afterwards. And that was a lot of fun. I was doing great. That was a great job. It went really well until the following November. And that company actually folded. And I was, again, out of work at Christmas. I had two back-to-back Christmas seasons unemployed. I mean, I had a lot of free time to go look at lights, but I was unemployed. Um, so, look, our lives are not smooth. Okay? I think all of us would wish they were smooth. I certainly wish that mine was smooth. It's not. It's not. And in a sense, if God had promised David a table and David's life was totally smooth, we couldn't understand it, we couldn't relate to it. We'd go, well, that was great, that was David, you know, that was God's king. What about us? But the fact that David's life had as many ups and downs and battles and intrigues and whatnot going on, we can actually look at it and go, wait a minute, I can relate to this. You know, you had Absalom, my kid's been a jerk, right? You made a bum decision, yeah, I've done a few of those as well, okay? And yet in the middle of that, when David looked back over all of it, he still saw the thing that God provided for him in the midst of those enemies. And this isn't just David's story. If you look across Scripture, think about Abraham. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the beginning of the nation of Israel, Abraham. His story was like this. Um, A couple of generations later, Jacob, another good example of somebody whose life was not completely smooth. Jump to the New Testament. Take a look at Paul's life. Guy wrote probably 40, 50% of the New Testament. His life certainly wasn't smooth, unless you think prison is a walk in the park. Okay, look at Jesus. So today's Palm Sunday, right? Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
kids and probably some adults waving palm fronds, okay? Israel's going to think that their military leader, Messiah King, is coming. A few days later, they're actually the same crowd is actually going to yell, crucify him. A few days after he rides in, he's going to sit down and eat a Passover meal with his closest followers. One of those closest followers, while they're sitting there eating, is actively plotting how he's going to betray Jesus. Okay? It's never smooth. God provides. Jesus gets crucified. There's Easter. God provides. Okay? Um, I think what I'm going to do is transition us to Brad now. Because in the midst of all of this, there is still God's continuing care as we walk down this rough road. So I'll let Brad pick up, and we will go from there. Thank you. You are like 6'10", huh? It's pretty high. It's great. 6'4", same thing. In the, <laughs> in the presence of the enemies. Now... You eat, you with your enemies. What's a natural thing that happens when you're with people or you have conflicts with people? You get hurt, right? When you're eating with somebody, if you have this fellowship, eating with somebody was a way of spending time with people. It was a way of accepting people. And when you're close with somebody, things are going to get said that you wish weren't said. Maybe this has happened to you from someone you don't like. Maybe you are what you would call enemy, right? Or maybe this happened from a loved one. Oftentimes, the most hurtful things come from the people who we are closest to. I make someone mad on the road, that's fine. I'm over it by the next block. If, if a client maybe gets mad with you, maybe it bugs you for an hour. If I do something to offend my wife, I'm in it for a while. I'm hurt for a while. If I have a falling out with my best friends... That one takes a while to heal. If there's a riff in my family, it's hard. It hurts. The closest people are the ones who cut the deepest to you. So David writes this, in the presence of my enemies. And then he says, uh, you anoint my head with oil. What I take this to mean is in the middle of the conflict, God is providing ways of healing and comfort to us all. Here's what I mean. The healing is always available in the middle of it all. In, in, ancient, in this culture, when shepherds would look at their sheep, oil was used for three purposes. It was a repellent from bugs. It was a way to prevent conflict between their fellow sheep. And then it was a way to heal present wounds. So it was a repellent for bugs. We don't like bugs. They bug us, right? But they are deadly to sheep. There was this type of bug. It was called the nose fly, and it wasn't just a catchy name. This, this bug would land on the soft part of the sheep's nose, and this is gross, so you might want to cover your ears. It would burrow into the soft part and lay an egg and then fly away. This is like one of my worst nightmares. The bug would then, the larvae would grow, and it's getting grosser. And then pretty soon, the sheep is irritated. And it irritates the sheep so much that some shepherds write that the sheep will go over and bang their head against the wall or scratch it against the tree and literally beat itself to death because of the bug. So the shepherd 
would see the bugs coming. And if there was a swarm of flies descending onto the sheep, uh, the sheep would go panic. They wouldn't eat. They wouldn't, the young ones wouldn't milk. They wouldn't sleep. So the shepherd would find the sheep and he would put oil on their nose. The smell of it would keep the bugs away. Bugs or the bugs gone, the sheep would be peaceful again until mating season. That's when they would start butting heads. We've seen the Discovery Channel. When it's mating season, the two rams get together and they see the same woman or the same sheep, you or the female sheep, and they decide that they're going to have a healthy competition over who gets her. And so they rear back and they run and they bang heads. That's the extent of how men flirt nowadays too, right? We haven't gone very much further. But the shepherd would see this, and sometimes the rams, when they would bang heads, they would get stuck together. Or they would knock each other silly, and one would die. So the shepherd would take oil, and he would coat their horns, and so a head-on collision would glance off to the side. And he would heal. It, it, would, it would be a sense of protection or healing, preventative care, if you will, so that when they would then hit, it wouldn't hurt so bad. The last one they took was uh, normal everyday use. When you're walking through the pasture, you're bound to get nicked up. You're bound to run up against the thorn. You're going to scratch yourself on something. And because the shepherd was attentive to the sheep's needs, he would take the, he would examine them and then he would look at, uh, look at them and see a cut. He would take oil and put it on, on the wound because today's cuts, tomorrow's infection, and he doesn't want the sheep to be harmed at all. So the oil prevented care, it prevented, it, it actually healed the wounds that were there. There was one thing the sheep would, actually, would have to do. In order for the sheep to be healed, the sheep would have to go to the shepherd and trust the shepherd to put the oil on. In a sense, the sheep would go, the sheep would bow, the sheep would trust. We, a lot, in a lot of ways, are like sheep. We've been wounded. We've been hurt by people close to us. And I ask you the simple question, how did you handle it? Did the conflict get so much that now you aren't speaking to that person anymore? Or was the hurt so much that it annoys you because you didn't get the compliment, the job didn't come your way, uh, you, you didn't get uh, the client, uh, the, the answer you wanted, and so something has burrowed into your nose like a nose fly, and you're annoyed, and you're kicking yourself over and over and over again. Or maybe it's just everyday wear and tear on your soul. You were disappointed. You were discouraged. You were disheartened some way, sometime along the way. There's this power in those three words or three letters, D-I-S, in front of words like courage. Courage becomes discourage. An appointment, an expectation becomes a disappointment. And when you're heartened, you become disheartened. Along your way, in the presence of your enemies, in the presence of the loved ones, when, when did you get hurt? How did you handle it? Or better yet, how are you handling it? Has the irritation blown up so much that now physically and mentally, every time you see the person, you're always in constantly fighting? Perhaps the wounds are so deep that it's began to take a toll on you. The thorns, the, the rocks, the trees, the loneliness, the illness, the betrayal, the injustice. 
it doesn't take long for every single one of us to have to experience this at some point in our life. We live in a very dangerous world and we need a shepherd. Maybe your first step is to realize I'm in a dangerous place. I'm in the presence of enemies and sometimes my enemies are my closest friends and I need to go to the shepherd. I need to bow and I need to trust him that he's going to take care of me. He anoints your head with oil. Going, trusting, bowing. This week I had a, a, a shot in my shoulder from my doctor. And it, this is, I, I went to him because I couldn't really do this anymore. And so I had to go to my doctor. It was a humbling experience. I had to go to him. He told me to turn around and take off my shirt, which is always weird. And so I did, and I'm staring at the window. And at the corner of my eye, I see him come in with a big needle. Great. And then he moves my shoulder around, and then he's telling his assistant what he's going to do. I'm going to go in through the canal, then I'm going to bend the needle. It's like a pilot saying he's going to land somewhere. And he goes in, and then he's telling me what he's doing, and then he puts the needle in and injects the stuff and comes out. I had to go to my doctor. I had to position myself in a way where he can help. And then I had to trust that all the stuff that he was mixing in his little concoction in the syringe would actually be helpful. For many of us, we need to go to the shepherd. We need to position our hearts in a way where he can actually put some oil on the wounds and heal us. And then we need to trust that he will do so. Prepares a table in front of me in the presence of the enemies. He gives me care in the middle of all this chaotic world. And lastly, David says, he gives me a mercy to continue. He says it in this way, my cup overflows. Like Brendan had mentioned earlier, uh, poetry has tons of symbolism. One symbol that we get in poetry is this cup thing. Jesus uses the cup as a reference to our life. David uses a cup and says, it's overflowing. When he sees the cup of his life, he just doesn't see an empty cup sitting on a table. He sees a cup that is is being filled and filled so much that it was overflowing. The mercy and grace that God has given him has overflowed the cup. Now, this is symbolic in many ways. When you, for instance, have people over and you want them to leave because it's getting too late, what is the symbol that you do? Do you look at your watch? Do you leave the empty wine bottles on the table to say, we're out, you should be too? Uh, My dad used to just get up and go to bed, (laughs) leave my mom there, or he'd fall asleep halfway through the conversation. Either way, what do you do to tell your guests that it's time to leave? Well, what do you do to tell your guests that you're really enjoying this? You bring out another bottle. You put in another movie. You start another game of Settlers of Catan or whatever it is that you play that takes hours and hours and hours. In David's day, the cup, when it was always full, it was a way of the host saying to the guest, you're still welcome. I'm really enjoying our time. Let's have another glass. And then pretty soon time gets away from you, right? And then the conversation keeps going. David says this, in the presence of God, he is overflowing my cup. Now an overflowing cup meant that the host didn't want this time to end. 
the, uh, the tablecloth is, is getting wet. It's dripping off the edge. David says, my life, the mercy, the grace that I'm receiving is my cup is being filled to the brim and it is overflowing. I am never away from the presence of this care in this chaotic world. But what's it overflowing with is the question I want. First, I think it's overflowing with grace. Our cup overflows with grace. In Romans 5.20, it says this, the law brought in so, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The word there for increase is the Greek word planazo, which means this, to superabound. So where we saw that there was deficiency, where we saw that we were in trouble, Grace superabounded. In other words, to say it was to exist in abundance, but superabound is a lot more fun because it's super. Superabounded. When we when we sin, when we feel like our cup is empty, the truth is that there is so much grace that it is superabounding. It is overflowing with grace. Many of us have this picture that we will outkick God's coverage, that we'll do something so bad that God will disown us. Not according to Paul here. The mercy and gr- the grace is super abounding, but it's not a challenge that we need to go try and outkick God's grace. Paul goes on to say, yes, we have so much grace, but do we sin more because we have so much grace? Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the point. We're given grace so that we can give grace. We'll never run out of this grace. And worrying about running out of this grace... It's like a fish worrying that it's going to run out of ocean to swim in or a bird think it's going to run out of sky to fly in. You'll never exceed God's grace. It is super abounding. Timothy says it this way in 1 Timothy 1.14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Our cup is super abounding in grace. Our cup is also super abounding in hope. Surrounded by our enemies, wounded from our past, maybe even some of our presence, it's easy to lose hope. Paul says this in Romans 5, Not only so, but also we glory in our sufferings. Brendan mentioned Paul's life. In the middle of his table, he's able to say, I'm suffering, but I find glory in the suffering because I know that suffering produces perseverance, which is a good thing. Perseverance produces character, which is a good thing. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. Hope. God pours into us hope. Hope is that does the same things for our soul as that warm Monday and Tuesday does for the winter and spring. When we've been through a long winter and it's so cold outside and dark and we get those first two sunny days and you're like, I've almost made it. (laughs) We're going to get there. Hope does the same thing for our souls. It says we can continue. It does for our moods the same as a sunny day does for us. Hope. He pours out hope to us. It gives us the energy to fight despair. For those who are sick, the hope that's being poured into is that there will be healing. For those who are grieving, maybe the loss of somebody, maybe it's a death in your family, the hope is that there's going to be a a reunion. To those hurting, there's a hope of comfort. 
God puts into your cup hope. The last thing that's in the cup, and there's a lot more, but we'll stop with this one, is mercy. He puts the cup of mercy. Because if you're going to be having dinner with people who you're at odds with, you need mercy to get through. Mercy, as one author said, is being able to get so close to somebody that you see your reflection in their own eyeballs. Mercy is being able to look at somebody, have grace and compassion, but then mercy is the step towards them to accept them and bring them in. It's compassion plus action. You want to relieve the stress that they're in. You see yourself in whatever deficiency you have. It's easy in our world to look at our enemies, the people we don't like, and immediately put up a wall. That's not mercy. Mercy says, you and I don't agree. You and I are butting heads. Mercy is going to that person and saying, we don't agree, but my compassion is going to lead me to an action that you and I are going to fellowship together. We are going to have supper in the presence of each other. Mercy, it comes from the Hebrew word, which means love. It's based on a relationship. In a biblical sense, it means that you're dining with people who you don't get along with and you don't run away, you engage. He pours us a cup of grace mixed with some hope and then overflowing with mercy. But it's easy to say, I have mercy and then not give mercy to somebody. It's easy to say, I've been given mercy and not give mercy to somebody. The point of having grace The point of having hope and the point of having mercy is that we extend it to the other persons around us. Our cup is overflowing. We have plenty to go around. It's overflowing so much that it's gotten to the edge of the table and it's going to start dripping onto the floor or onto the lap of, uh, of yourself and you're sitting at the table. You have so much mercy. Give some away. Give some to the person that you just don't see eyeball to eyeball with. Give someone to the person who voted differently than you. Give someone to the person, give some mercy to the person who thinks totally opposite the way you do on every single issue. Mercy. Get close enough to them when you can see your your reflection in their eyes and you can understand why they might think this way. Then you'll have grace. Then you'll have hope. And then you'll have a continuous healing in the midst of having dinner with your enemies.